For the next uh, number of weeks, about eight weeks, we'll be looking at the book of Ruth. And as I was thinking about this, um, probably some months ago, I had been reading Psalm 139, and uh, this sort of fit with me, uh, the name of the series, The Night is as Bright as the Day, because Ruth starts out with some pretty bleak circumstances. And uh, it's hard to see God when life is not well. And I was reading Psalm 139, and uh, there's a, a, a line in there in verse 12, which says, Even though the darkness is not dark to you, and the light about, or, or for night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. And as I was reflecting on that, certainly in the book of Ruth, uh, our lives may appear to be dark, but to God they are light. And that is what I hope we will find as we go through the book of Ruth over these next number of days. Um, I want to just read a, a portion at the end of the book uh, this morning to sort of set us up and at least familiarize ourselves with the b- book. I hope over the next while you will, you will read the book. Uh, it takes 12 minutes, and um, so that won't bite into your day too much. Uh, I have already read it numerous times and will continue to do that over these next little while. And you find that the more you read it, the more it becomes part of you. And the more it, un- it makes sense, and the more one section will tie with another section. So if you can read it every day, great. If you read it once a week, great. But I encourage you to familiarize yourself uh, with the book. Um, verse 13 of chapter 4 begins this way, and it is the conclusion. It's like going to the end and finding how the story ends, but that's all right. Um, and it goes this way. Hear the word of the Lord. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Father, thank you for this word, and thank you for our time in the word. May it be a help to us even this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you know what a bird's eye view is. It's the viewing an object from above as though one were a bird. If you were to go up to Little Mountain, uh, it'd be about the closest thing you could be to bird, a uh, bird and still have your feet on the ground. And if you were to look out over the Oceanside area, you'd be able to pick out various landmarks and various notable things. You wouldn't get a lot of detail, but you would get a bird's eye view of the lay of the land. Uh, many of us are now familiar with bird's eye views of the earth from the shuttle. As the shuttle orbits around the earth every once in a while, when it used to be um, doing its regular missions, they would show a newscast with a glimpse of this orb on which we live. And it's fascinating to have a bird's eye view, to see the oceans and the land, the deserts and the greenery, the big mountains with snow, the cloud cover, and get a bird's eye view of our particular planet in which we live. If you were to go to Bing Maps, which is not unlike Google Maps, You would find there that they have five different ways that you can look at a street if you want to go and look up a street or look at a particular neighborhood. One of the primary views that they offer, they actually call it a bird's eye view. And it displays through aerial imagery of the streets and roads a view that has been captured by a low-flying plane. So they say this is a bird's eye view of the particular neighborhood that you are looking into. 
We can also get a bird's eye view from a literary perspective of a book. And I take it to to view a book from a kind of literary aerial perspective to stand back and sort of fly over the print that's on the page and from that see what stands out on the verbal landscape. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want us to get a verbal uh, bird's eye view of the book of Ruth. A book that focuses on a foreigner, a widow, and a bachelor. Paul's, uh, uh, the book of Ruth is not a deep theological work like the book of Romans, yet it is, it is full of theology as we will find. It is not a magnificent symphony of work on the, the life and death of Christ like the uh, gospel of John might be, yet it ultimately points to the coming of Christ. It's not full of this apocalyptic imagery that we get when we read a book like Revelation as God unfolds his plan for this world. But yet in the book of Ruth, God does trace his working and how he unfolds events in history. It's not basic instruction about the kingdom of God like we might find in the Sermon of the Mount. Yet it does contain important lessons about how we live our lives as the people of God. And the book of Ruth does all of this by the way of three main characters. Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. A widow, a foreigner, and a bachelor. Consider today then some of the broad implications of the book of Ruth from a bird's eye perspective as we begin 2012 together. I find that the starts of years for me are are helpful not only is my birthday near the beginning of the year... Uh, but it's a time when I sort of relax a little bit and look back and also look ahead. It's a time when I refocus. It's a time when I try and recalibrate my life somewhat. It's a time when I try and renew my commitment to certain things that I, uh, I think are important in my life. And so as we do that, I hope maybe these things that we'll look at this morning will not only give us a bird's eye view of room, but will help us as individuals and a church to reflect on what this year might hold for us. The first sighting that we get as we do this low-flying aerial view over the book of Ruth is this ability to reacquaint ourselves with the providence of God. To reacquaint ourselves with the providence of God. We spend time about uh, dealing with providence when we dealt with Esther, and I encourage you maybe on your own to read up about the providence and understand it. We might have time over the coming weeks to look into it a little bit more deeply, but for now, just understand that the providence of God is something that is displayed in the book of Ruth. And as we consider it, I want it to fill us with confidence. See, this book is a book about the ways of God in human life. Or more succinctly, it is a book about the hand of God. It's a beautiful story that illustrates this one grand reality that God is a hands-on God. That he is involved in the very details of our lives and of this world, and he is and will bring about his purposes. One has said about Ruth that it is a glorious account of divine providence. Because it shows us in miniature form, but in considerable detail, how wise God's sovereign purposes really are. We need to wrap our minds around that. Another writes, it is a story about the firm, guiding hands of providence that are uh, at work in this world. Another said that the most prominent purpose of the book of Ruth is to bring the calamities and sorrows of life under the sway of God's providence And show us that God's purposes are good. I love that. 
Because it tells me that not all will go well in my life all the time. I will face adversity. I will face struggles. But that does not mean that God is not at work working out his purposes for my good. And so the book of Ruth illustrates the providence of God as he takes the bitternesses and the anguish and the adversity of my life and he works it out for his perfect plan and purposes. The book of Ruth is sandwiched, really, by two acts of God's providence. The first one is simply that in verse 6, when uh, Ruth hears in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited the people and had given them food. And then at the end of the book, when we read that passage, that the Lord enabled Ruth to conceive. Those are acts of the providence of God at work in the circumstances of our life, bringing about his glorious purposes. We see the hands of God in other events. Um, we see it in the famine that strikes Bethlehem and, and Israel and causes Elimelech to disobey God and go to the land of Moab. We see it again in the, in the, in the bringing of rains to provide crops for them. We see God's hand in seemingly chance events. In chapter 3, um, Ruth says something along the, the lines of the narrator says, her luck brought her into a certain field. That's just his way of saying God's hand brought Ruth into the field of Boaz. We find uh, in other circumstances that God's hand is even behind our blithering attempts to solve the problems of our life. And in chapter 3, a little later on, we find um, Ruth uh, going and laying at the feet of Boaz. And her actions there are more the actions of a prostitute that are described in, in Proverbs chapter 7 than they would be of a worthy woman. And yet God guides and protects and directs the actions of Ruth there and the actions of Boaz towards Ruth. How do you think God was also a, 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 at work at the gate of the city when they gathered together to present the claims of, of the, the kinsman redeemer that there was this land and there was this woman and how God in his beautiful providence made it possible for Boaz, who was second in line for the land in Ruth, to gain her as his wife. And what is remarkable throughout the book of Ruth is that these things are not done by this extraordinary act of divine intervention, but that the providence of God is worked out in the everyday obedience and disobedience of his people. In Ruth, the result of this one strand of the providence of God is that David is born to a humble family in Bethlehem. God's hidden hand is at work in the lives and actions of a widow, an alien, and a bachelor. What kingdom work will God accomplish through your life this year? What kingdom purposes will God fulfill through your serving him this year? Sinclair Ferguson writes, We are not able to detect with perfect clarity the hand of God in the circumstances of our lives, far less see where he is heading with them. But when we find his autograph in the narrative of biblical history, we begin to recognize the same or similar patterns and principles emerging in our own lives too. And so we learn to see his handwriting in our own experiences. Loved ones. We do not know what's ahead, either individually or corporately, 
But will you commit with me to search for the evidence of the handwriting of God in the events of your life and my life and our church in the days ahead? To look with eyes that penetrate beyond what is seen. To, to realize that things are not as they seem. Or as we've been saying, no, things are not only as they seem. That God is behind the scenes writing, guiding, directing our lives to fulfill his purposes. Many who comment on the book of Ruth refer to the hymn that we just sang by uh, the English poet William Cowper. He was a man who struggled deeply with melancholic depression and, or a disposition. He had frequent bouts of severe depression. And yet in one stanza, he writes, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. But you see a problem there? What happens when one walks upon the sea? They immediately become invisible. The footsteps immediately disappear. And so he recognizes that God moves in mysterious ways. We don't always have access to his, access to his blueprints. We can't, we can't second guess his purposes. Ferguson continues to write, Finite creatures can never fully comprehend what an infinite God is doing. We try to by the little question, why? But we will never fully comprehend what an infinite God is doing. Here in the book of Ruth, God allows us to see the kind of thing he does so that we may trust him when we see similar patterns being woven into our lives. Ruth takes our sight lines of what God is up to and pushes them beyond the horizons of our present lives. In the everyday events of our lives, God is at work, shaping and setting in place things that we may never see, things that will come to fruition in 60 years, in 100 years, in 200 years. And in fact, there is a time when David is fleeing from Saul when he says uh, to the king of Moab, will you look after my family? Hundreds of years later, God was setting up a relationship to protect David's family. We do not know the breadth and the scope of what God is up to in our lives. This beautiful story gives us insight and especially gives us hindsight into the ways of God. It's like God is saying to us, do you see how I planted my footstep in the sea of the lives of these my children in past days? Let me show you how I did that. This is the kind of God that I am. These are the kinds of things that I do. And that is precisely what you can expect me to do in your lives. Trust me. I know what I am doing. But when times of prosperity hit, that's not all that hard, is it? It's when times of adversity hit that it's difficult. When adversity strikes, we need to learn to ask, can I trust and love God who has dealt me this painful hand in life? I don't know what this year holds, beloved. But I do know that in this life, our hope in this life and the next depends upon a God who is in control of every detail of this world and of my life. And the book of Ruth encourages us to be confident in the goodness and the guidance and the providential leading of God in our lives and in our church. He is continuously at work. We tend to live in the moment, but Ruth displays for us what a life of faith looks like when we gain the perspective 
of God's providence. So, dear ones, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And at the right time, he will exalt you. Cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. The second thing that we see as we do this verbal um, fly pass over the book of Ruth is what I want us to do is reflect on our interaction with the family of God and to be kind. Some of you may be familiar with the uproar in Vancouver late last year. City bans kindness. Any of you heard that discussion on CKNW near the end of the year? There was a problem that people were going along and randomly pugging the parking meters of people that were still shopping and had forgotten to come back and plug their meters. Turned out this was illegal. Who thought? Prominent in the book of Ruth is this concept of chesed. I'm only going to say it once in the Hebrew pronunciation, and the rest of the time I'm just going to say hesed, because I don't want to spit on the people in the front. But hesed is prominent in the book. It's only used three times as a word, but its expressions and actions are woven through the pages of the book of Ruth. It is a great word, but there is a problem with it. For this one Hebrew word, there is no one single English word that accurately conveys its meaning. So we have many. Wrapped up in this one Hebrew word, hesed, are notions such as covenant loyalty, faithfulness, kindness, mercy, love, loving kindness, and compassion. We read that uh, as we read through the Bible, uh, this prominent word, hesed is a strongly relational term that's tied to positive attributes in God, such as his love and mercy and grace and kindness and goodness and benevolence and loyalty. And it's acting for the benefit of another, listen to this, with no concern what you might receive back. It's a strongly relational term that says, I will act on your behalf and I will expect nothing in return. It's also fundamentally a word of action. And it's a, a word that recognizes and acts to receive or to relieve an urgent or essential need in somebody else. It's the kind of needs or the kind of needs that it responds to are those that reflect a person in dire straits. It's something done for another in which one has a commitment to and who is in real desperate need. So when we show hesed to another, when we show kindness to another, it's, it's towards one who is in desperate situation, who is in dire straits. It's also an action of often a more powerful person to a weaker person. And it's a voluntary act of extraordinary mercy and generosity. It's a going beyond the call of duty. I have been struck and continue to be struck by how many in this congregation demonstrate hesed to one another, and to others in our community. And my prayer is that God would increase that in our midst, that the very character of God who is himself full of hesed would be reflected in our lives in this coming year. Hesed requires extraordinary commitment. Naomi urges both Ruth and, and Orpha to return to their homes and to go back to their gods. Orpha does what's expected. She does the ordinary. She goes home. There's nothing wrong with what she does. Ruth, however, does the extraordinary, the unexpected. She commits herself to Naomi and her God. She leaves her family and her home so that she can show kindness to Naomi, her mother-in-law, who is all alone. 
And she determines to to seek help in a foreign land on behalf of her mother-in-law. It's like Philippians 2 tells us. Everyone should look after not only his own interests, but also the interests of others. And Boaz and the unnamed redeemer. The unnamed redeemer does nothing wrong, but his actions are self-serving. He's only thinking of himself and his economic well-being. His eyes are on the present. So he says, no, I don't want the land if a wife comes with it. Because then if we have children, I have to give it all back to the kids. Nothing wrong with that. But Boaz shows extraordinary commitment when he says, I will suffer the loss of my land and my economics in order to provide for Naomi and this foreigner, Ruth. Hesed also takes extraordinary risks. Think about Ruth for a minute. She committed to leave everything that she knew and commit herself to Naomi and take on a life that she knew nothing about. How much courage did it also take for her to go as a foreigner into an Israelite field and glean of what was left behind by an Israelite farmer? In so doing, she did it because she needed to provide for herself and for her mother-in-law. She risked ostracism. She risked physical harm and even rejection from gleaning in the field. How much more did she risk by going to Boaz's um, uh, uh, granary and sleeping at his feet? But even then, she wasn't thinking of herself. She was thinking of her mother-in-law. And Boaz risked his reputation by allowing Naomi to stay. He risked losing Ruth by making another, by making her aware of another redeemer who had first right over the land and over Ruth. He risked his family name to perpetuate the family name of another. Hesed also requires that things be done in the right way. Sometimes we want to be so kind that we think we can cut corners. When so much is on the line, we can be tempted to take shortcuts. After all, our motive is right, so it doesn't really matter how I get there. As long as my motive is right, we're just trying to be kind. But beloved, kindness never circumvents doing things the right way. Ruth asks permission to glean in the field. Ruth is committing to honor her mother-in-law by going home with her. She remains, remains pure in a difficult situation. She shows Hesed to Boaz, uh, or showing Hesed to Boaz meant uh, self-denial and maintaining biblical boundaries of what was right in a relationship. Moreover, Ruth didn't protest when Boaz said, well, there's somebody closer than I, but you know what, let's just keep it a secret and I'll just go ahead and we'll show kindness to you. No, she kept her mouth shut and she trusted God to work his will out in the situation. And Boaz, thinking that his chance to marry such a beautiful woman inside and out might be lost if he made this public, said, no, I will do things the right way. Extraordinary commitment, extraordinary risks, doing all things righteously, a widow, an alien, a foreigner, three ordinary people who portray an extraordinary alternative to the way of life that is so commonly lived around us. They commit to a life of kindness, to a life of hesed. Today, we are the people of God here. We are the family of God together. And as we consider how we work together, will we decide and can we decide together this morning that we will act with kindness towards one another this year? 
that each one of us might consider how we can go beyond the call of duty when situations arise that we're made aware of, not concerned about our own needs and our own interests, but saying, there's a need, I will step in, I can help. Let us consider the needs of others as more important than our own. After all, doesn't the fruit of the Spirit bear kindness? Aren't we told to put on or to clothe ourselves with kindness? So let's commit together to reflect the extraordinary kindness of God demonstrated to us. Are you willing to make extraordinary commitments to one another this year? Are you willing to make extra, take extraordinary risks for one another this year? Are you committing to acting with integrity regardless of what the cost might be this year? The Bible's teaching is simple and straightforward. Whenever people of faith practice God-like hesed towards each other, God himself acts in them. We tend to live self-centered lives and lives that are self-focused. The book of Ruth teaches us to live lives that benefit others and demonstrate kindness towards them. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? To love hesed, it's a word, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Third, citing as we fly over this book of Ruth, rejoice in the wideness of God's grace. Be gracious. Ruth reminds us that God's grace knows no boundaries. Even a despised Moabitess is incorporated into the nation of Israel. In fact, the royal bloodline has Moabite blood running through its veins. Do you know that Moabites and Israelites were not on friendly terms? But there is a wideness in the embrace of Ruth that is significant here. She's embraced by Naomi. She's embraced by the gleaners in the field. She's embraced with honor and respect by Boaz. She's embraced by the women of Bethlehem. Her ethnic identity is never hidden in the book of Ruth. You will almost always find her referred to as Ruth the Moabitess, as to remind us that here is somebody who has been hated by the people of Israel that is now brought in and incorporated into the family of God, into the covenant people of God. She's accepted into their life. And my prayer for us is that we will increasingly and continue to be a people that embraces all kinds of people from our community. Those that we don't like, those that we've had run-ins with, those that we keep our distance from, those that we don't want to talk to, that we will say, no, God's grace is bigger than my hatred. God's grace is bigger than my animosity. God's grace is bigger than my prejudices. And as God draws them towards us, we will be a people who opens our arms wide and says, welcome to the family of God. May we be a people that welcomes and embraces and accepts those who are not just like us. It's easy to fill our lives and our church with people that are similar to us. But the book of Ruth demonstrates what a life of faith should be like. Let us embrace the wideness of God's mercy. What neighbor will you commit to prayer this year? What schoolmate? What family member? What work colleague? God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of him. So reacquaint yourself with the providence of God and be confident in the leading of his hand. Reflect on your interaction with the family of God and be kind to one another. 
Rejoice in the wideness of God's grace and be gracious to all he brings into our path. And finally, familiarize yourself with God's redemptive purposes. Be watching. See, a bird's eye view of the book of Ruth lets us see clearly that God's plan was so much bigger in scope than anything Naomi, Ruth, or Boaz could ever imagine. But then, isn't this just like the God we serve? In the case of this story, God is at work preparing the way for Christ in a manner that nobody sees. Because God knows the beginning from the end. Because God will accomplish his purposes. Because God is working all things together for his glorious purpose. Who knew that Obed would be the grandfather of David, king of Israel? God did. And who knew that hundreds of years later, the New Testament would open with an announcement of God's promise to another young woman who displayed all the marks of Hesed to and who had found favor with God, that she would bear a son greater than Ruth, greater than even her grandchild. Her son would be Jesus, the son of the Most High, Emmanuel, God with us, who would save his people from their sins, that he would sit on the throne of David and his kingdom will know no end. And so the book of Ruth, focuses like a microscope on the detailed preparations that God goes to in order to fulfill his purposes in redemptive history. This small glimpse into the grand plan of salvation is part of the redemptive summary that Peter mentions twice as Luke records his sermons. For truly in this city were gathered together against your anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Or men of Israel, hear these words. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up. Loved ones, God is always at work bringing about his redemptive purposes. In very, very bleak times, the time of judges, God was at work in a little family in Bethlehem to bring about the line of David. Hundreds of years later, in equally bleak times, God was at work in a little family again from Bethlehem to bring his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to be our savior. And God is still at work in the darkest of times. Things haven't changed. But God is still in control. As John reminds us, look, a throne, and there is occupied. We've talked about that often. The throne of this universe is not vacant, loved ones. The throne of this universe is occupied by none other than the God of this universe. And we should be saying, look, not, or we shouldn't be saying, look what the world is coming to. But rather, with the birth of Christ, we should be saying, look, who has come into this world? And now, again, the times are bleak, and God's promises shine even brighter. And I've been thinking of the many promises which point to the soon return of Christ in all his glory, the culmination of God's redemptive plan. God will accomplish his purposes, loved ones. Peter describes a great day and then encourages this response. When all the earth will be destroyed, when Christ will come again and the day of judgment will happen, he says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? In the days of judges, when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to be those who live godly and holy lives. 
as you look forward to, and listen to this phrase, and speed that coming day. See, Ruth is about God using ordinary people to bring about his grand purposes. People committed to a life of faith. And people reminds people of faith again that we are to live godly and holy lives. Lives marked by hesed. Lives marked by anticipation. Looking forward to that great day when God's redemptive purposes will be fully and finally accomplished. Lives Lives marked by participation. By what? By participation. Because as we live such lives, we hasten or speed that coming day. I don't know, loved ones, how your life and my life, God might use to bring about the final return of Christ. But that's the kind of God he is. And that's the kind of thing that he does. And so may God help us to live such holy and godly lives that he will speed up and hasten the return of our coming Christ. And then we add a, Another sentence of hope, look at who is coming into our world. See, the book of Ruth prepares us for the first coming of Christ through David. It encourages us to have promises or confidence in the promises of God for the coming king. But you know Jesus is coming again. Do you believe that Jesus is coming again? See, we need not be in the dark. God has given us ways by which we might detect the hand of God. As we look at the events that are happening around us, read Matthew 24, read Luke 13, I believe it is, or Mark 13, and see the things that God says, these things will happen, these things will happen. When you see these things, look up, for your redemption draws nigh. When all this kind of stuff begins to happen, don't be fearful, because this still has to happen. Loved ones, we ought to be people who are expecting God to fulfill his promises who are expecting God to complete what he says he will complete. And so look up. Set your mind on things that are above. Live such godly and holy lives as you wait for the coming of the Lord. And in the same way as the disciples saw him going physically from this earth, Christ is going to return to this earth. And so as we come into 2012, may it be with confidence in the promises of God and the providence of God. May it be with a renewed purpose to demonstrate hesed towards the people of God. May it be with a renewed sense of graciousness towards all who God will bring into our fellowship. And may it be with an eye to watching the unfolding of God's redemptive plan to the day when we may be alive, when that trumpet sounds, when the heavens part, and when Christ comes back again. Together, let's fight the downward drag of our sinful nature, which tends to an earthbound, self-centered perspective, and embrace the life of faith that Ruth demonstrates and displays to us in the coming weeks.